if I'm out there chipping away, figuring out how to make it better, how to help us detect more cases, how to make things easier on participants, that's a way that I can contribute to science. And it's really intellectually fun. Hi, this is Hannah. My pronouns are she and her. And Aggie, my pronouns are she and her. The Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies is an international organization composed of researchers, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, social workers, marriage and family therapists, nurses, and other mental health practitioners and students. Within ABCT, there are special interest groups. That's where ABCT members can gather and connect. They're called SIGs for short. We're two student representatives for the Child Maltreatment and Interpersonal Violence, or CMIV, SIG. Today, we'll be briefly talking to Dr. Anderson, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of North Dakota. We'll be talking about her recent publication in the Journal of Sex Research, Discrepant Responding Across Measures of College Students' Sexual Victimization Experiences, Conceptual Replication and Extension. We'll talk about measurement, campus sexual assault, and additional resources that researchers, clinicians, and community members can utilize to optimize measurement of sexual victimization. You can find a link to Dr. Anderson's article on the CMIV Twitter account and in our newsletter. In Dr. Anderson's study, she investigated differences in reporting on the Sexual Experiences Survey, or the SES, and the Post-Refusal Sexual Persistence Scale, or the PRSPSV. It's a really cool study because it's just so straightforward in its design in a great way. So both of these measures are trying to measure sexual violence experiences, meaning that they have a great deal of overlap. And in this study, participants completed both measures, and then Dr. Anderson compared rates of victimization reporting between the two measures among a sample of college students. I'm Rayanne Anderson. My pronouns are she, her. I'm assistant professor at University of North Dakota, and I am principal investigator of the UND Sexual Violence Prevention Laboratory. I like to say I am PI, I'm the HBIC of the lab, but we are a team. Everything we do is a team, a team effort. In our lab, we really try to be, do innovative and really solution focused. That is our approach. And we try to really attend to victimization issues in a very solution focused way. Same for, we always try to, if we're doing a victimization study, we try to do a paired perpetration study. Always trying to make sure we're doing both and trying to really uh, make sure we're including marginalized folks in our research. That's great. And I know we've been really looking forward to sort of hearing you talk about um, this paper in particular. And I know that sort of leading up to this talk, you had mentioned that you had heard someone joke that nobody really cares about measurement. And so you were excited that this was the paper we chose. Why is it that you feel like people often just sort of put measurement aside? I still, you could knock me over with a feather that this is the paper you guys wanted to talk about. And when I get I'm, I'm sh still shocked that I got it published and that it was published like fairly easily as far as the publication process goes. I'm shocked whenever anyone cites it. That's not me. I'm still like processing that anyone cares about this besides me. And I think measurement has kind of, I think it, it's not as exciting of research to do. Thinking about how we learn about measurement is usually it like psychometric theory and graduate school and it's like kind of boring and like that stuff you have to do 
to get to the better stuff, to get to the more exciting stuff, the stuff you're more interested in. And, um, and I think traditionally it's been really thought of in terms of what's the factor analytic structure and the internal consistency and these kinds of really technical kind of boring things. I think that's one part of it. I think another part of it is that I think for the most part, the folks that do this work do it because they really care. They really care about violent survivors and providing better treatment. And so then doing like measurement focused research feels really far removed from that. I think it, it feels like it's not as relevant. Like what am I doing doing this when I could be doing these things that are more directly helpful for survivors? So I, I think that would be my, my kind of guess. I don't, uh, no data. I'm a, an empiricist above all. That would be my guess as to why this has been kind of historically neglected. Yeah. So then why is it so important that researchers and clinicians care about measurement? For me, bottom line, uh, if I'm going to call someone a rapist, I want to be very confident about that. That is a serious accusation that should be backed up with good data. Um, and I think we, you see in the media all the time about how imprecision opens the door for people to unfairly usually but to attack your work. And, and same for victimization. We're talking about something that is deeply serious and we should be very confident that when we label something rape, it is rape. That's why I do it. That's why I care about it. We will never solve this problem if we don't understand the scope of it. And particularly when I think about folks that do intervention research and how hard it is to do intervention research just practically the, you know, many, many things it takes to do intervention research. You get to the end of that intervention and maybe you don't find what you were, you thought you were going to find. Gosh, what if that's because you didn't measure things well? Holy crap. Like you spent all of that time on something and you don't really find out what you set out to do because your measurement wasn't precise enough. That's a tragedy. And something that's really cool about this paper in particular is you're looking at some really common measures that like researchers are using, but that also like practitioners are using. College campuses are using these measures when they're trying to understand sexual violence on their campus. Mm -hmm. uh, so just what got you interested in taking a deeper look at these measures, especially as they pertain to the way you take up differences in gender and a difference in language surrounding different body parts? Mm -hmm. It is completely accidental that I got started on this. My very first kind of peek into this was in graduate school, was like, we don't know enough about men's victimization. And we have this new SES, but it hasn't been really tested. I'm going to collect some data on that side project just to, you know, like assuage my uh, methodologically obsessed mind. And that initial, like, let's just collect a little data to, to feel confident about next steps turned into like five papers and spawned this whole two or three other lines of research that I'm now still pursuing because we co-administered the conflict tactic scales, thinking like, here's this really well-researched measure. And we found huge discrepancies between the sexual experiences survey short form, the revised 2007 version, and the conflict tactic scales, and in ways that we didn't expect. Like we expected there to be discrepancies, 
but we expected that conflict tech scales would detect fewer cases than the SES. And we found the opposite was true. And so that kind of just like opened this can of worms. And I think I was kind of primed to um, take up the reins and, and take that mantle on of diving into measurement because I got really, really great training in graduate school with my grad school mentor, Sean Cahill on methodology. Sean is a fantastic methodologist, always really encouraged all of us in that area. And so it was kind of this really nice pairing of stuff that I really enjoy doing. I find really intellectually interesting and something that I think really matters. And I feel like is a way I can contribute to violence broadly because we all have to measure this. Everyone doing violence research knows the SES. If I'm out there chipping away, figuring out how to make it better, how to help us detect more cases, how to make things easier on participants, that's a way that I can contribute to science. And it's really intellectually fun for me. So then coming to the paper that we're talking about today, so this sort of discrepant responding across measures of sexual victimization experiences, the big question, sort of summarizing, you know, what did you find and what are the big takeaways that you want people to get from this paper? I think the main takeaway is that like, y'all, measurement matters a lot. Like it matters a lot. You know, your base rate prevalence could change dramatically depending on what questionnaires you choose to include and how you administer them. So again, just thinking about all this time and effort we put into our research, like choosing the right measurement tool for this construct can really make a difference. And I think it shows that we have a really long way to go in understanding how to best capture these constructs, how to best capture sexual violence. The theory behind it too, in terms of like the boring psychometric theory part uh, is still kind of being figured out of like, what does this all mean? Is it, it may be that because we're talking about a behavioral experience rather than a trait that reliability just won't ever be as high. Like that's, that's possible. I don't know if that's like the, the truth or not. We, we need more to find out and I'm digging into the theory part more, but it is not as much fun, I will admit. <laughs> I think this paper also really pointed out that we're not cutting it. We are not meeting the already kind of low bar when it comes to understanding uh, men's experiences of sexual victimization and the experiences of sexual and gender minority folks. The data is just basically doesn't exist for sexual and gender minority folks. So to me, it's just kind of a giant question mark as to whether we're really capturing their experiences or not. But given the giant gender differences we're seeing, I would hypothesize that we're missing some stuff, missing some cases. Some of our follow-up research that we've done since then has really started to clarify where some of those issues are. The other big takeaway in my mind is that when I talk to people that don't do trauma research, even people that do research in other areas of social science, and especially lay people, the reaction is kind of always like, whoa, how do you get people to admit to these behaviors? Like, how do you do this research? How could it be possible that people are willing to, to tell you about this stuff? And they are. 
And I think this paper really shows that much more of an issue is unintentional underreporting. Uh, Zoe Peterson and Emily Strang have written really cogently about that issue, that it's really this, people are not on purpose, per se, suppressing these reports, as you can see in studies like this. Yeah, in your writing, the, the intro does like a really nice job for like students who might be listening to this, who are just wanting to learn more about measurement. You pick up um, a lot of problems with measuring sexual violence there in your intro. For example, there's a documented issue of um, sometimes perpetration questions, making some people actually answer about victimization experiences. There's issues about like instruments get designed for one population and then they get adapted for another population much later. Sometimes the order of questions might matter, measures assuming that respondents are heterosexual, not necessarily capturing perpetration and victimization of transgender and gender diverse people. I mean, you started talking about this here too. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. Uh, so what thoughts do you have on how researchers, um, colleges, practitioners, clinicians can just start overcoming these limitations? Mm, that's a good question. And I'm glad you particularly brought up uh, some of the issues with marginalized folks being left out of research. Kind of where to start, I think, is transparency. We published a systematic review of reported prevalence rates for sexual violence perpetration, and we found that something like 60-65% of the time people administer a sexual experiences survey, they were altering it in some way. And that was what was reported. <laughs> And so I'm guessing that it may be even higher than that of people just unintentionally not describing changes they made that they thought were small and not a big deal. And I say that partially because of just how many people changed it and also of the like how much effort we had to put into and how many times we would read the article and things didn't look different. And then when we found the actual questionnaire, when we pulled up that appendix, things were different. So I think being really, really transparent about when you make changes, what changes you made, because we've been able to find a lot and generate a lot of hypotheses to test just by taking a really careful look at what people did say they changed. So that's why I don't wanna be anti-making changes because I think a lot of times people are making these changes for very good reasons. They're making these changes because it's leaving out the experiences of sexual and gender minority people, for example. And so giving a questionnaire to your, you know, trans patient that you think is going to really hurt them by not representing their experience is a real and valid concern. But like, make sure you document those changes so that the rest of us can learn from that. And we can all move things forward by just being more transparent about that. Because folks like me will track it down. I will track it down. Tell me, send it to me. So that, that transparency, um, and for practitioners in particular, I would really recommend that people give paper questionnaires and not just rely on interviews. I think the phenomenon of unacknowledged rape, right, that so many people who experience rape don't call it that. They maybe don't even recognize it as a problematic experience. They may use euphemisms. So having these kinds of behaviorally specific questionnaires will really allow you to identify cases that would otherwise not be uh, not be found, not be recognized, not be acknowledged. Even in your interview, even with patients that you think like you know well and you have great rapport with, this unintentional underreporting will still get you. 
So for practitioners, I would say, you know, give paper, give, give them a questionnaire. Don't do an interview. If you're not sure about your patient, it doesn't hurt to ask. It doesn't hurt to give them that questionnaire. And it doesn't hurt to ask for their, you know, their thoughts on completing that questionnaire either. That's another area of research that we're starting to collect kind of acceptability data and preference data in terms of how do people want to be asked about these? Do they have preferences about which questionnaires or which items are easier? And then for researchers, that, again, that transparency issue is just super important for everyone. I think we particularly need a lot more data on test retest reliability. And there's like some controversy in the literature about this in terms of does, since it's, we're not talking about behavioral experiences and not traits, is test retest reliability just as important? I think over the span of a week, it's unlikely for a new event to occur unless we're talking about like a chronically abusive situation. And if we can't get reliability over that short of a period of time, we got issues just like from the practical perspective. So I think personally think test retest reliability is super important. And I think construct validity is super important. Are we capturing what we think we're capturing? Uday and Peterson have a really amazing but horrifying article where they found that 40% of college women who reported a perpetration experience on the SES were actually talking about a victimization experience. That is like just a ginormously problematic false positive rate. I'm not comfortable publishing any data using that questionnaire in that manner, knowing that. And I think that points to a really important area for future research. It's also really cool to hear you talk about like how one study leads to interest in another and how like we're talking about this one paper, but you're able to separate out like here's an implication for practitioners, for clinicians, for researchers. And so sort of along a, a similar vein, right? So students and clinicians especially often read these articles in the hopes of um, being able to use measures in practice that are gonna accurately portray their clients' experiences. So what advice do you have for clinicians and student clinicians who are trying to balance acknowledging like, oh, these measures really need to be improved. They might not be representative or even measuring the thing we think they are, mm -hmm. um, but also wanting to sort of rely upon evidence-based measures. Yeah, and th this is where like basic descriptive data is so important and often gets cut for page space in journals. What we're in the process of doing in our clinic is just for these questionnaires, looking at the frequencies of each item and being like, all right, we have room for five items. This is the population I think is most similar. I'm gonna choose these five most frequently endorsed items and I'm not gonna change them. <laughs> I'm gonna be transparent and, and go about it that way. I think practitioners could feel confident in using these questionnaires in an unedited manner um, and just choosing if they don't want to give the whole questionnaire because it can be long, choosing some items that they think are more important for their population, ask those questions. I think it's fair to pull out the items that you think are most applicable. And if we as a group of researchers start publishing that descriptive data at the item level, that also really, I think, helps practitioners be able to see, okay, in a, this population, these are the kinds of incidents that are most reported. And so I will choose those corresponding items. There are huge gender 
differences in endorsement of individual kinds of incidents or items. And I, I think we can come up with all kinds of other scenarios that we think would make a difference in terms of what kind of incident happens. So knowing your population, I think goes a long way. And so people who are just reading studies that use the measures that you're talking about in this study, what, if any, is the balance between you as a reader saying, okay, I know there's a lot of problems with these measures and still having some amount of confidence and prevalence or incidence data that we have or the way that uh, interventions get applied to like systems level settings because of these data from these like problematic measures? Oof. Yeah, that's a really hard question. Um, I think there's, and, and I even, I haven't had this as a reviewer, right, where I'm peer reviewing my colleagues' work and I want to be a, a good colleague and I want to support research on violence, and but I am extremely skeptical of anything that's uh, being done with perpetration and women using the SES. Like, show me what you've done to deal with that false positive rate. And, and I, you know, I'll be open-minded about that. But if that's not even acknowledged, I'm scared <laughs> about that. And I do not have much confidence in that data then. Um, so I, I think in measuring victimization in women, we can be reasonably confident in our questionnaires. There's multiple options, I think, that have, you know, reasonable evidence of validity, particularly for young women. Um, I think for perpetration, we can have reasonable confidence with men that we are capturing it uh, at least somewhat well. Uh, but I, I don't think we've like nailed it down for either of those issues. And I think the data um, also suggests that in terms of men's victimization and women's perpetration that there's really a lot of room for improvement. And I am not, I mean, myself, those are two issues that I think are really important and interesting. And basically I'm only doing measurement oriented research on that right now, because I don't want to spend time collecting data that I'm not confident in. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with things. I always include a second questionnaire to kind of give you a sense of how accurate your data is. I think that goes a long way towards giving you some confidence in the data. And so for people who are listening who might be interested in learning more about particularly measurement issues in sexual violence, do you have any good resources for them in terms of just learning more about these issues? Oh, hmm. I wish. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are doing this work, but it does seem like more people are starting to. Um, so what I do is, so I, I try to be really transparent and put everything that gets published, posting it as a, as a post print on the scholarly repository at my university so that it's not behind a paywall and posting it on OSF so that again, it's not behind a paywall. I think that's important and valuable. I think that there are more people starting to do it and I would love it if there was some kind of like consortium of people doing this in a bit more organized fashion in terms of that it is hard to do this research in some ways and making sure that we're not unintentionally like replicating each other or things like that would be amazing and a consortium, kind of some kind of collaborative network would be super helpful. 
And the other thing that I do is I am on ResearchGate and I also have a uh, RSS feed for the journals that tend to publish this kind of work to just stay on top of it and know what's happening and get in touch with people about it. And I've had really, really good luck with uh, specific editors being very encouraging of this research. So shout out to Sherry Hamby when she was in charge at Psychoviolence of like explicitly being like, I want to publish measurement research. Shout out to Zoe Peterson, who has been really encouraging of this research. And both Psychoviolence and Journal of Sex Research in general have been good homes for this kind of stuff. Uh, so journal editors, it is important that us authors hear that you actually want to publish this stuff because I was told by so many advisors and mentors that it wasn't publishable and the editors did not care. And so I think we, we could still do a little bit more to counteract that idea. Hannah, is there anything else about this study that you just have to share? Maybe like another, you've, you've given us so many excellent calls to action, but uh, yeah, is there anything that we didn't yet talk about that you just, you just gotta share? <laughs> um, well, shout out to Doug Delhanty, my postdoc mentor for teaching me how to write about measurement in a way to make other people care. Uh, I remember him, like, he was just like, ran, we gotta work on this. We gotta simplify to the most basic level. You need to hammer it, why this is important, because this is not something people are gonna be naturally interested in. Like your communication has to be clear and directly related to the public health. And that was really valuable because to me, I was just like, I'm a scientist, I love the science, this is interesting. And having to draw that out as to why it is important, just beyond that good science and good measurement is important, was really helpful. And he did uh, a lot in terms of just helping me learn how to write well and write about this in particular. Um, and, and as far as the findings in this paper, we've followed up on it in a number of ways. One thing that I think is really interesting, we have a paper about to come out that shows that the issues in assessing men's victimization seems to be weirdly specific to heterosexual men. That the validity correlations were much higher for sexual minority men than for heterosexual men. Who knew I would ever be in the position to say we need more research on heterosexual men's issues? This is a complete shock to me. But I think, uh, I think that's super interesting and in a very specific way we can follow up and learn more about some of the issues raised in this paper. Another thing we followed up on is getting into more of the tactic first items and replicating that they seem to produce higher prevalence rates. And I'm super excited to start um, some new research starting to get out why that might be and thinking about what are potentially the mechanisms of that? I think that's an important area to go next. So one final question um, that we just have to ask. So what are things that you enjoy about being in the child maltreatment and interpersonal violence SIG at ABCT? It is so fun and always encouraging to me just to be around other people that are doing this work, especially because I think so much in psychology, particularly, it's been treatment focused and we've approached violence research from the kind of end point of PTSD treatment. And I think our SIG is really good at kind of going back and being like, violence in and of itself is a problem. 
it doesn't have to be associated with the diagnosis for it to be a problem and be something that we can all work on. I feel like that attitude and that kind of clarity is sometimes lost a little bit. And I think our SIG is really good at just being like violence in and of itself matters and it's important and we can stop it. And I think the scholars associated with our SIG are just amazing. Like I'm like, I want to be like you when I grow up peeps. Um, <laughs> and the students are always really open and excited. It's just a lovely place to get energized about this work and talk to other people who are excited about it. That's awesome. I love that answer. <laughs> well, thank you for talking with us today. I feel like I learned so much about, I mean, about measurement, about your work. It's so interesting, just things that I truly hadn't thought much about. I do mostly child maltreatment research, so it was really awesome to hear you talk about it. Yay! Just to echo what Hannah said, thank you so, so much. You're so welcome. And listeners, email me about your interesting measurement questions. I have buckets of data lying around. I love hearing people talk about measurement research. I am available. This interview was made possible by CMIV SIG Connections. It's one of the many benefits of being part of the SIG. If you aren't a member yet, you can be. Check out our website for more information, linked on our Twitter and our newsletter. In this quarter's newsletter, we also have a Q&A with Dr. Molly Franz. It's about the many applications that come with being a clinical psychology trainee from grad school to the job market, and she even gives some movie recommendations. If you'd like to be interviewed or nominate someone else to be interviewed for a mini podcast or a future newsletter, get in touch with us via our website. That's all for now. And now I'm like, got all excited and I think I lost my train. <laughs> I think we're still all on board the train. <laughs> we need to go to Measurement Improvement City. <laughs> yes.